You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? journey this evening to help us we've got um todd winwood who is a licensed mennonite minister for watershed discipline and author also author of the book rewilding the way todd welcome oh thanks for having me here rabbi neil of course so you grew up a conservative in a conservative presbyterian household is that right uh yes in southern california in the reagan era yep. wow and then you studied comparative religion in college so what drew you to becoming a mennonite Oh, that's a great question. I'd say authenticity, really. Um, Yeah, after growing up in a conservative Christian environment that didn't seem to have all the answers, I then got into wilderness adventure, wilderness backpacking, but found God in many faiths and traditions and also in the wild. Mm -hmm. And then coming back through studying Hinduism, Buddhism and such, I began to really be interested in spirituality and social change and how those two interplay. And I was actually very influenced by Richard Rohr and the Father uh, Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan, in the Center for Action and Contemplation. And as I was rubbing shoulders with people there, I bumped into these Mennonites in Albuquerque. And they were blue jean wearing Levi and final shirt kind of normal people who were practicing a pretty radical Christian discipleship in how they treated and loved other people on the streets and how they spent their money. Right. Um, they sang like nobody's business. It just was a a group of people that I said I want to belong to. They actually take the following of the path of Jesus seriously, not just believing in him as a Messiah, but rather trying to be like him, trying to be a friend of God. So it's interesting when you said that for you, conservative Presbyterian didn't have the answers. So what were the questions for you? What were the core questions? Yeah, I love um, the concept that if you're converting to something, you need to be converting from something. And I think for me, when I look at essentially the word empire comes to mind about what's happening in America today and capitalism and the have and have nots. Those aren't things that Jesus would be comfortable with. And as a person who had a fiery, loving faith in Jesus and in God, I didn't see people practicing the works of Jesus. And so the question of how then shall we live today in the face of climate change, economic uh, dissonance, uh, immigration, things like that, I found Mennonites and, and watershed discipleship to be a fascinating way of living out our beliefs, but in, in a way that embodies, in a, in a Gandhian sort of way of being the change you want to see in the world. So you mentioned this, this Mennonite Minister for Watershed Discipline, which is a very unusual title. So what does that mean? Yeah, it's actually watershed discipleship, not discipline. A discipleship, okay. um, but But the discipline, the same root word there, right. and having practices, it, it, the, that's a great question because – I was licensed for special ministry within the Mennonites because they liked what I was doing in Taos. And then I said, well, what special ministry? What do you mean? And they said, you tell us. And the term watershed discipleship is a triple entendre, really, that a man named Ched Myers coined and then I've I've lived into. And I think I'm the only Mennonite minister for watershed discipleship in the world. So here you are. Here we are together. But watershed discipleship is in this watershed moment of history. How do you Uh, practice and live out your your, uh, transformative leaven in the loaf kind of concept of a Jesus follower? 
The second then is in your watershed, in your neighborhood, in your area, how do you practice your discipleship? And then the third piece that I brought into the conversation and then coined with with Ched Myers is this idea of being a disciple of your watershed. So the idea of being a disciple of your watershed means treating your region as your rabbi, if you will, your teacher. How do you change your taste buds when you live in northern New Mexico versus San Francisco? What do you build your house out of? Right. So in northern New Mexico, as you know, we have a lot of mud. We've got a lot of timber. We've got a lot of stone. We don't have a lot of polystyrene. We don't have a lot of asbestos. So building out of foot-thick walls of mud is a natural way of a watershed disciple. One of the things I really like is taking it above and beyond just my own path of Christianity and thinking of the watershed way as a, a larger umbrella in which you as a rabbi might follow the watershed way with your congregation. A Buddhist monk might practice their version of the watershed way. A Catholic up in northern New Mexico could practice it. So it's a way of common cause living I love the idea that taking Jesus' words as Wendell Berry did and said, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. Right. So using water as the metaphor for common living and for bringing that shalom, that kingdom of God as Jesus envisioned it, but the deep peaceable kingdom through a level of living as a humble member of your watershed is really what watershed discipleship is about, that I don't have control over it. And all the beasts and, the, and the, the humans and the non-humans all have a place in this creation. And to be comfortable with our boundaries and our blessings within what this region, so the northern New Mexico Rio Grande region, gives right. us. Right. So I have to ad- adapt and surrender to the watershed in order to be a member of the watershed. And you mentioned the, the first uh, meaning of watershed being in history. What to you makes this a watershed moment in history? Mm. Yeah, that's really the first question, I think. Okay. And the most important in that I do, I feel like about 50 years ago, Jimmy Carter told us to put on sweaters and he put solar panels on the White House. That was a national awareness that we couldn't keep living the way that we had been. And this industrial frenzy we have, this ecocidal strange disease we have called affluenza, that we're eating ourselves alive. We're actually pillaging our own mother earth seems like spiritual traditions have gone asleep at the wheel, that we're supposed to be elders, and yet we're not really transformative in the way that I would like to see it. So a watershed moment of history that I believe is that we must get back to the deep strands of our foremothers and forefathers teaching us to live in a more transformative way and more aligned with a godly way, an embodied way that shifts our consumerism and our taste buds and our habits. So... This is the moment that if I can't even be sure that my son is going to be drinking clean water and breathing good air, and with these fires in California, it's just another example of what have we done to ourselves. So that's why I call it a watershed moment in history is we had better wake up. And we're either going to go exponentially one way or another. And I'm I'm excited to be alive, but like I'm waking up. I'm (laughs) – This isn't a time to go to sleep and watch a lot of Netflix only. I I, I do that still. But (laughs) But, um, but are we in time? I mean, when you're saying, uh, you know, years ago when he was saying putting on sweaters and and so on, that was the time to do that, right? Yes. Um, You know, almost that was the watershed moment, which American society, as far as I can tell, rejected um, to a large extent. 
are, are we not actually past that watershed moment into the survival moment? Well, that was the rational moment, yes. Okay. That was the possibly efficiently through human power changing things moment. Right. But I and maybe you and others somehow are clinging to the wild card of God, of spirit. Like in the Old Testament, they say, we follow a God who makes a way when there is no way. It's not easy for me to be a Christian. It's not easy for me to be part of an institutional religion. But I cling to it because there's hope in the ashes. There's hope in something bigger than just humanity that I think a lot of my secular scientist friends might as well feel like they don't have anything to live for because, yeah, we're past in terms of human ingenuity. I, I think we're beyond the, the human scale. Um, but like a fierce mama bear, that's, that's where I am. I've got right. kids to defend. I've right. got people I love. So you better believe I'm going down fighting. I'm going right. to – for me, in this crazy sort of looking at our tragedy in the face, it makes me actually more creative – more alive, more rejoicing, that doesn't mean I'm successful. Right. But it means that I have to step out of normalcy. And that's why this book, Rewilding the Way, mm -hmm. the subtitle is Break Free to Follow an Untamed God because God remains untamed. We have become domesticated like sleeping cattle, I'm afraid. And so breaking out of consumer culture in order to be ferociously inventive, ferociously uh, loving nature, ferociously holding on to each other in the face of very dehumanizing conditions is what my role, I think, is today. So let's take that dehumanization. Um, when I, I hear you talking about rewilding the way and this transformative change, but change is very hard on a personal level and then on a communal level and then on a global level. How can, how can we change? What can we do that is meaningful and um, effective almost, that is relevant? Because we can say, I, I think one of the most powerful failures almost, uh, when Al Gore released his movie, uh, An Inconvenient Truth, it really woke a lot of people up. And then at the very end, it went downhill and said, you can save the planet by turning off lights mm -hmm. and by, by recycling. Just, right. And just doing these very small greening things and we'll all save the world. And, and, you know, years on, we realized, no, that was nowhere near enough. What can we do to rewild the way to, to take the, um, you know, the book title? What, how do we tap into this untamed God? What is it that we need to do? Hmm. And I want to use that word rewilding loosely. It doesn't mean that we all suddenly camp out in tents or something right. or learn how to forage. Those are nice but token things. It's the idea of reclaiming our own authority as wild beasts of God. And like what Gandhi ultimately did, he, of course, had a rabble to deal with. He didn't have these finely tuned people. He had to help them. And so they did boot camps. They did satyagrahi boot camps to be ready to, to defy empire. When the British Empire then said, we're going to tax your salt, he said, I guess we'll have to go get our own salt. This idea of claiming one's own rule or health is like he used the term swaraj, which literally home rule or self-kingdom. That's what Jesus said when he said the kingdom of God is already here. It's within reach. He was talking to peasants. He was talking to illiterate poor people, slaves, women, and he's dared to say the kingdom of God is amongst us. 
that's what Gandhi talked about. It seems like what the prophets talked about. When I think about Isaiah and you know, proclaiming liberation to the captives, who gave him that right? Mm-hmm. Who said he could give freedom to the captives? He did. God did. We get to. And so reclaiming our power in the face of this kind of regime we're in right now that tells us you're not in charge. It's hopeless. Right. Don't do anything. So for me, the t- like Standing Rock mattered a lot. Right. These on. were people that might have been defined by the American society as drunken Indians, as abusive, unemployed people. Mm-hmm. They became water protectors. They just changed their narrative. By doing that, they became ferocious. They shone to the world. We then did this crazy thing called the Paris Climate Accords, and our own president dared to say, no, we're not in. Right. Millions of other small groups all across the world said, no, we're still in. But, but and so, so this idea of, of a watershed or a countywide narrative is what has given me some hope today, is that I can't change my government right now but I can influence Taos County and I can influence the northern New Mexico watershed. And so scales of le- that level beyond my own doors, beyond my own fence wall, beyond my own neighborhood, but community-wide, it seems like is the hope for hamlets or eco-villages or counties to reclaim things. And I see it happening all across the country and the world that way. And I, th- I think you've answered the question I was going to ask, which is, you know, at Standing Rock in the end, they were forcibly removed. Right. You know, so what good was that? And the Paris Climate Accords, virtually no country has actually observed. And is, is you know, the things that they've agreed need to happen, the changes that need to happen are not happening on a governmental scale. But it sounded like you were saying, actually, it's on the local level. That's where change can be made. And I keep looking at all of my spiritual mentors I don't see them ever becoming president of their communities. They never became the Congress or legislator. They worked with the people and somehow erupted within the people. And this idea of a failure that turns out, I mean, Jesus only had three years and then he got executed. He wasn't a real successful guy at the time. Oscar Romero gets assassinated. Gandhi gets killed. JFK, you know, all uh, Martin Luther King. These are not people who have won in the short term. Right. So there's something strange about the religious, that religio, the reconnecting piece that isn't about proximal short-term success. I think Standing Rock is going to go down as a landmark in social spiritual history and that it's ignited water protector units all across the country. Right. They did not succeed in that initial thing. But they started essentially the tide going, didn't they? So. And, and I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a desperate man. You know, I'm not saying that I have answers as much as this is at least gives me hope. I wake up and I'm excited to wake up and be alive today if I can claim that. We're going to take a pause. This is a fascinating conversation. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. And my guest this evening, Todd Winwood, Mennonite minister for Watershed Discipleship and also author of the book Rewilding the Way. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Todd Winwood, a Mennonite minister for Watershed Discipleship and author of the book Rewilding the Way, Break Free to Follow an Untamed God. What does that mean, an untamed God? And you were talking before about being, you know, the, the wild for God. What does an untamed God mean for you? Well, now I get to do a little religious history okay. on my end is that... Um, Jesus and the early Christian church after Jesus 
was largely a persecuted, under-the-ground, catacombs, in the desert kind of place. And Mennonites know that. And they also claim the fact that there was a apostasy, a break from that, when Constantine, the ruler of Rome, decided to make Christianity the national religion, something fundamentally happened differently in the Mm mid-300s. Christianity got in bed with empire. There was no break between wealth and social prominence and being a Christian, when before that was anathema. You could not join Rome. Mennonites actually still believe that. They believe in the priesthood of all believers. They believe in a flat uh, community-based system, and they believe they should not lift a sword or a gun against an enemy. They actually take uh, Jesus' adage of, of love your enemies seriously. So, but that's that's extreme pacifism, right? If somebody comes, it's active pacifism. Oh, active. If somebody comes at you to attack you, a Mennonite does what? Well, so this is a question. In general, it's like Gandhi. The idea of loving and knowing your enemy enough to believe that there's a hope there that isn't a violent over and and under. I mean, I don't know what I would do, but I certainly know I would be willing to go to jail to not join the army. I'm not going to fight a war for my empire ever. It's not worth it. And you've got Mennonites who've been kicked out of almost every decent country in the world over history because they refuse to pledge allegiance to the nation and they refuse to pick up weapons against enemies. That makes them troublemakers. Right. Even though Mennonites are often seen as quiet in the land, as very meek and mild, they didn't start that way and they shouldn't stay that way. Interesting. So, uh, I mean, this idea, it's... I was thinking it's almost anarchical, but not. It's it's in the sense of trying to overturn that which oppresses our own humanity. Would that be right? It is anarchical. It's the healthy anarchy of self-governance. It's what Gandhi talked about. It's what Jesus talked about. It's when you choose, when Jesus looks around and says, who is my brother, my sister, my mother? You are. We are. Like we just chose that right now through self-governance, not through a lineage of history and obligation and wealth and posterity. So it, breaking that and the idea of a jubilee year and our own mm-hmm. traditions together, like that's anarchic health at its best when people choose a self-governance and a self-definition. So, yeah, there's a lot of human choice making that we've given up today in this kind of culture of consumption and affluenza. We think there's no other hope. We drive our car. Why? Because we drive our car because everyone else drives a car. Right. That's a choice. And I'm not saying that that's going to save the planet, one person stopping or growing my own food. Uh, for so that four people in my house can live purely. That's, I'm not about personal purity as much as systemic change through radical social action. That's a ferocious love that doesn't make someone else an enemy. It's interesting when you said a ferocious love and you mentioned the mama bear before, you know, which makes me think of Hosea um, quoting, you know, the, the idea that God is like a, a mother bear That's protecting right. her cubs. So that makes me ask, you know, in your in your writing, in your philosophy, you often draw on ancient Hebrew prophets and on the Torah and the books of Moses. And so what do you think modern day Christians can learn from the Jewish tradition? First of all, that an exodus is good. Go on. It's easy to get people out of Pharaoh, but it's not easy to get Pharaoh out of the people. Okay. This idea that we are addicted, we're suckled with technology and trinkets and baubles and the flesh pots uh, that they used to have (laughs) in Pharaoh's land, the idea of being addicted to the benefits of empire so that we actually have no decision-making. We've gone soft. So the exodus of enoughness and the, the stories of manna, of having enoughness, that God provides enough for the day. You know, I love that Jesus didn't make up those words when he said, 
ask for enough bread for the day, that he was taking that straight out of the ancient prophets and out of Daniel and David and places like that. And this idea of, of trusting in enoughness. Um, so that idea of learning to live off of and trust community mm. and trust nature, that there is enough for us instead of constantly hoarding is one of those messages that I find over and over in the Old Testament prophets and the, the prophets bringing us back to a relationship with God. And I would, I'd love to believe that personally. But the problem is that some communities run out of water, run out of food. And, and so having that trust that local community will always be able, you know, if we just say enough is enough, but sometimes changing climate, changing, you know, ecosystems mean that people have to become climate refugees. People have to move around or they die. And so when you're talking about this, what you're talking about is is faith in hope and and that everything will be okay, aren't you? And, and, and I, I guess my difficulty is when you think back to, you know, you're talking about Jesus and ancient biblical times, people died much earlier then. People didn't live as long. So when we look at the current society, of course, we're addicted to it because I live twice as long as somebody who lived 2000 years ago. So why wouldn't I plug into that? So so that's for me the the perspective of the everyday person saying but look we can read we're healthy we can combat diseases we have vaccinations you know we re- rely on that society to make us go further so how can we unplug especially people who rely on medicines and, and things like that how far can we go uh, to me that's just a thought exercise that ends in just personal imagination. I, I in no way think that we need to or should become uncivilized to, to the idea of using appropriate current technology based on ancient values. I'd say the best thing that right now as a, as a board member of New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light up north, I kind of hold down the northern area of the right. state as that representative. I'm so excited about Taos County's vision for going to renewable energy by 2022. It's where millionaire investors and the government and the local energy co-op and local nonprofits have all together in common cause had a vision of justice for the whole county so that everyone gets renewable energy. So by doing that, we become God's hands and feet. We become exactly what we were given the solar energy. We were given the intelligence to make solar panels. I'm not saying solar panels are the savior of the world, but rather... A countywide vision instead of just me as a wealthy, white, educated Christian saying, I'm going to bank up and prep my way into Armageddon here and have my own solar panels and screw you, all the rest of you in my watershed. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of caring for the watershed, which I think the ancient people knew how to care together and use technology. But it's that, it's that desire, and I don't have an answer for this, but that sense of scarcity that makes others take and take and take more than enoughness. Right. That's when we start going, I think, away from God's plan, away from the divine narrative of what's possible. Can we live into that? I I don't know, but I'm going to hope for it. This is the tragedy of the commons, isn't it? The idea that when everyone can take, everyone thinks that others are going to take more, and so they therefore take more, and so we don't end up sharing. So I'm wondering if if rewilding for you is, as you say, not about going back and living in tents, but about 
and not just um, moving away from affluenza, but moving away from the self as the defining being in that's right in the world. One of the things I write about is just uh, Ecuador and the fact that they rewrote their constitution uh, in 2008. That in, for the first time ever anywhere on the globe, they gave nature rights, right? Legal rights for nature. Another thing that they worked and incorporated in a lot of indigenous perspectives into this constitution and this concept of sumat kasai or buen vivir, the good life, is a threefold concept that some, an action is good when it's good for me and for my human community and for my non-human community. Then it's a good act. Right. So that's the identi- – what's good? How then shall we live? Not if it's just good for me, but if it's good for my entire community, then it's a good act. And then we're getting back to like – to me – sort of ancient Amish seventh generation things, ancient native perspectives of seventh generation things, of what's good for my great, 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 great grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Those perspectives where the self is not the center focus of what can I get in the short term to protect myself. And what does that mean from a, a Christian perspective um, when some of the – many of the guests who I've had on this show who um, are from a very branches of Christianity talk about personal redemptions, personal salvation, you know, their own um, journey from this world to bring their soul to connect with God, to connect with Jesus and, and salvation through Jesus for them as an individual. Um, what does that mean? I mean, is that is that where your theology is as a Mennonite or as a Mennonite minister? That, that's just bad theology. Okay, so so in that's, what way? That's Christian consumerism. That's heretic, heretical from the words of Jesus Himself. Go on, tell from me, the text. Tell me more. Like, I mean, the one of the famous lines that Christians love spouting is, "For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son." Mm-hmm. The world doesn't mean for God so loved middle class white people. It doesn't mean just humans. The word is cosmos. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the entire universe. So there's a redemption of the entire universe. What it seems like in Judaic thought is this tikkun olam kind of concept, this mending, this repairing the breach is what Isaiah says. I mean, that's our job collectively to redeem. And so I grew up in a conservative Christianity that told me that it was my own soul that I had to protect. Mm -hmm. At the expense of everyone else, that just doesn't make sense. Right. That's not a God that loves people. That's not a God that loves the earth. That It's an original blessing that we were given, not some curse. And so this idea of my soul apart from everyone else is a sad, sick American phenomenon. Um, or it could be a hierarchy, caste-based phenomenon, but it certainly isn't the Bible. And so to summarize in our final minute, for you – the, the way forward, what's the way forward in terms of rewilding and connecting with God? Uh, well, connecting with God means also Jesus' vision of kingdom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. He wasn't joking around. That wasn't a metaphysical joke to say we're talking about heaven only, heaven on earth. So this idea of watershed way and the coming back to that notion of do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you, it is salvation, through humbleness, through anav, through humility. And so through humble being with the earth, with your partners in your area, enough for all, that's the kingdom right there to me. And it's also the way that we become tied into God. And so it's a personal salvation that's linked with the redemption of the land and with the people and to care for all of those around us. This is 
been absolutely wonderful. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. What a joy. Uh, thank you, Todd Winwood, um, the uh, Mennonite minister for Watershed Discipleship and also uh, author of the book Rewilding the Way, Break Free to Follow an Untamed God. Thank you really for your really profound answers to today's questions. If I could just put in, a, I live in Taos and Taos Initiative for Life Together, TILT. If people want to find out more about me or my work, taostilt.org is a way they could find me. That's great. Thank you. So I do hope you'll return another time to um, share more and to, to, to inform me more and to, for us to have more discussions. Rabbi Neil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Intersh- Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>